Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and that means it is time to talk about science and skepticism. So, let us do that. So, as always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website, Evidence-Based Errata. So let's start tonight with another refutation of the idea that the Large Hadron Collider will somehow create a black hole that will destroy the Earth. So Martin Rees, a British physicist who is actually respected um, in other ways, has apparently been kind of uh, putting out this theory for many years. And he is actually not affiliated with CERN at all, uh, which is the body that runs the Large Hadron Collider. Um, But he has continued to suggest that this is a possibility. And of course, he has a new book out too, which is uh, another way in which this has come to the forefront of the news cycle again. What Professor Reese proposes is effectively impossible and already excluded by the previous generation of accelerators and the LHC itself. The particles he predicts would be more likely to be produced at lower energies than high energies. Freya Blechman, physics professor from the Vrij Universiteit Brussels, uh, who works on the LHC, told Gizmodo, And of course, by more likely, she means slightly less impossible, but still impossible. And so every time the LHC is upgraded, the collider, the odds actually go down even more from extremely impossible to even more extremely impossible. And so what's really important to remember here is that the energies involved in the LHC are high by the standards of particle physics. It's a huge collider. It's the biggest collider out there at the moment. Um, But compared to the totality of energy in our world, it's equivalent to around the energy of flying bees. It's nothing compared to what nature is able to do all the time without creating black holes such as cosmic rays, which can hit the earth with energy equivalents to a billion times that of what is produced at the LHC. Since the earth hasn't disappeared after billions of years of being bombarded by these cosmic rays, we are confident that the LHC, which produces Particle collisions in a more controlled environment will not cause this either, noted Claire Nellis, an LHC physicist who works on the ATLAS experiment. And in fact, the LHC actually has a safety committee that vets experiments to be sure that they won't create any of the weird doomsday scenarios that anyone can come up with. And on top of all of this, Even if a black hole was created, it would almost certainly immediately dissipate due to the release of Hawking radiation. And so uh, one of Stephen Hawking's more famous, uh, one of his more famous uh, theories is that black holes basically lose mass through some sort of quantum interaction at the event horizon. And so this means that the tiny black hole that would be created in a collider experiment would have such a small amount of mass that it would immediately decay and would not have enough energy to suck the mass of the Earth into its maw because its maw would be extremely small. (laughs) So, um, you know, this has been a favorite conspiracy theory of a lot of people over the years that the LHC was going to create some sort of Armageddon scenario. And obviously that has not yet happened. 
and I don't expect that it will happen at any point in the near future because, again, physicists also live on this planet. Why would they want to destroy the planet (laughs) that they also live on? And physicists spend a lot of time thinking about what they're doing as far as their experiments. And so they're not going to be trying to do something that is actually going to cause some sort of rift in the space-time continuum that's going to destroy us all. They're just not, that's just not something that they're trying to do at all. And it's not something that can even be an accident of what they're doing. Again, the amount of energy that they're producing in the collider is extremely small given the scale of the universe. It's really high in that particular uh, amount of, um, you know, particles and and smashing particles together, like they're doing the best smashing, <laughs> but uh It's really not nearly enough to create any kind of doomsday scenario. Um, Just as an aside, because it's so funny, um, I've mentioned before that I have this sort of uh, guilty pleasure interest in watching sort of conspiracy theory uh, shows. And I was flipping through videos on YouTube the other night and I had to watch this one. It was only a few minutes long and it was actually this amazingly hilarious video that suggested that quote-unquote scientists had realized that the uh, giant uh, volcano on Mars, Olympus Mons, uh, is actually not a giant volcano, uh, (laughs) but actually it is the remains of a Martian particle accelerator. I don't even, I don't even know where to go with that. You know, it was very, just, just sometimes the conspiracy theories and the like weird things that people come up with are just, they're, they just leave you speechless. And that one really left me speechless. Uh, There is absolutely no evidence to suggest that the, uh, crater around Olympus Mons was anything other than the remains of uh, ancient, very ancient uh, volcanic activity. And so, yeah, it was just, that was a crazy one. I thought I would share it with you because it is amazing the kind of things that people can believe. And so that's actually one of the reasons why we need science so much, because science can say, um, actually, <laughs> that is completely unreasonable. There is no way that there was an ancient uh, particle accelerator around Olympus Mons. It's really just a giant volcano. We promise. <laughs> okay. So let's move on. We are actually going to talk about physics for quite a bit right now. Um, And we'll finish up with a couple of other odds and ends at the end. But there just seemed to be a lot in physics tonight. And so, or this week, I should say. So speaking of physics, (laughs) let us talk about Donna Strickland. And so Donna Strickland is only the third women third woman, excuse me, to win a Nobel Prize. Now, Marie Curie did technically win two, but (laughs) she's still only one woman. And in fact, uh, it's so uh, uncommon to even think about it that Strickland herself was actually shocked the first time someone asked her, you know, in a press conference, basically, how does it feel to be only the third woman to have uh, won a Nobel Prize? And so she uh, said, well, I mean, I was surprised when whoever first said that to me said that to me this morning. It hadn't occurred to me. I hadn't looked at all the Nobel Prizes and thought, my goodness, there's no women. So it was a little bit surprising to me. But I mean, I do live in a world of mostly men. So seeing mostly men doesn't really ever surprise me either. So 
so yes. Laugh. And then she laughed. Uh, there you go. I feel unbelievably honored to be, you know, with Marie Curie and Gopert Mare. And so uh, this was, that quote comes from an NPR interview with um, Elsa Chang. And woo boy, is it true that physics really, really has a uh, gender disparity issue. Uh, and so this is uh, physics and astronomy are one of those places where there's a lot of those stories about like, some woman did amazing work, and then her male uh, partner or her male advisor, or her male whatever, totally stole it from her and took credit for it. And uh, even beyond that, with Strickland herself, it turns out that a site moderator for the website Wikipedia, which despite being dubious at times, is still the go-to for a lot of people when they first start asking about something, they actually rejected an entry for Strickland in March. When a user tried to create a profile for the Associate Professor of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Waterloo and a former president of the Optical Society, the page was denied. This submission's references do not show that the subject qualifies for a Wikipedia article, said the moderator. On the other hand, her colleague, Gerard Moreau, with whom she shares half of the prize, has had a page since 2005. Now, of course, the Nobel Committee itself isn't exactly blazing the trail when it comes to uh, actually having representation for women. And in fact, even last year, all of the winners were men. But of course, we're hoping that this will start to change. We are disappointed looking at the large perspective that more women have not been awarded, Gran Hansen, the vice chair of the board of directors of the Nobel Foundation, said at the time. I suspect there are many more women who are deserving to be considered for the prize. Now, I've actually talked about this before, but just as a reminder, over the 117 years in which the award has been being given out, only 50 women have won a portion of 923 prizes that have been dispersed by the committee. And that is not because the women are not out there. And it's not because they're not doing cutting edge Nobel Prize worthy science. We need to celebrate women physicists because they're out there. I'm honored to be one of those women, Strickland said in a statement. And so, yeah, it is definitely a place where we have a lot of progress to make. Now, Strickland and Maru, uh, who is from the École Polytechnique in France, discovered a way to produce what is called chirped pulse amplification. So this actually uh, led to the ability to create high-intensity laser pulses, uh, and so this was a huge breakthrough in laser technology. Now, both this and Arthur Askin of Bell Labs Creations, uh, he actually created what is called obstacle tweezers. They are both ubiquitous features of modern physics research, and so both of these things are definitely worthy of a Nobel. Now, chirped pulse amplification is named after the chirps of birds, which create short pulses of different sound frequencies. And so basically what happened with lasers is that shortly after they were discovered in the 1960s, they hit a limit in the amount of power and intensity that they could create in a uh, sort of wieldy form. Uh, they couldn't be made more powerful without making them extremely large and again, thus unwieldy. 
And so Strickland and Maru uh, realized that by creating a series of steps, they could solve this problem and create more intense lasers that could be created on tabletops. And so this system involves stretching, amplifying, and then compressing the beams. Now, one of the big breakthroughs was that the stretching occurs across time rather than distance. By compressing a pulse in time, which makes it shorter, it means that more light is packed together in the same small space, making the intensity of the pulse dramatically larger. They published their work back in 1985, and it was actually Strickland's first published paper. Um, Maru was her, uh, her, um, advisor. And so this is one of those nice, uh, examples where the person that she was working under actually gave her credit for what she had done. Um, so, you know, there is actually hope. And so again, this has kind of been the bedrock on which subsequent lasers have been uh, created. And this actually includes those lasers that are used today in uh, LASIK laser eye surgery. Now, this is just a bonus fact. Uh, So one of the things that is sort of a uh, overall thing that I want to talk about And um, I was reading an article where it was pointed out recently, and I think it's important to uh, share this this sort of thought and to continue to be more mindful of it, is that it's important to remember that even if a piece of scientific knowledge won't lead to a specific commercial or practical application, it is still well worth knowing and well worth supporting financially the people who are figuring these things out. Science is the pursuit of knowledge, not the pursuit of information that will lead to practical applications. And so it's something that a lot of people struggle with, especially science reporters. People always want to sort of end a uh, article or, you know, mention in an article that, oh, well, it led to this practical thing. So that's why you should care. And it's just frustrating because you should care because it is a amazing thing that we have learned about the universe. It shouldn't have to have led to something specific in order for us to be interested in knowing about it. So it's just really uh, just something to think about when, uh, you know, somebody basically will say, oh, well, you know, what does that lead to? It leads to knowledge, and knowledge should always be the most important thing when thinking about basic science. I mean, obviously, we need to have practical science. We need to have engineers and people out there making things and making the world a better place, and a lot of science is devoted to specifically making the world a better place, but we also need to remember that some of it is just so that we can know about how amazing the world is. So yeah. Okay. Let us actually uh, swing back now to women in physics uh, for one more addendum to the story. Uh, Because of course there is. (laughs) Uh, We all know that right now there's a lot of uh, sort of reckoning happening and a lot of soul searching going on. And we also know that not everybody has gotten that memo. So apparently, a prominent Italian physicist, Alessandro Strumia, actually spent time at CERN recently lecturing young women scientists on the fact that he believes that there is no sexism in physics and that anyone who suggests that there is is actually a cultural Marxist. Now, if you have never heard the term cultural Marxist, you're so lucky. <laughs> it is a child of the Nazi term culture Bolshevismus, uh, or cultural Bolshevism. And so cultural Bolshevism was a uh, 
it was the suggestion that Jews were basically trying to spread communism, and uh, that was part of why they were bad and wrong. And so cultural Marxism is kind of comes out of the weeds of that. And uh, the original cultural Marxists were considered to be devotees of the Frankfurt School. Now, the Frankfurt School is an obscure strain of academics, which has been scapegoated as a shadow organization bent on spreading Marxism in order to destroy the West. Again, this is all very, very weird and crazy and what? (laughs) And so um, the Frankfurt School was, you know, some frankly, old white dudes who got together and uh, talked about esoteric things and uh, talked about Marxism. And um, I'm trying to recall if they were uh, post-structuralists or not, but um, it doesn't matter because the Frankfurt School is not, it, it, there, it doesn't even exist basically anymore uh, as far as people who are devoted to it. Philosophy has moved on. Economic theory has moved on. And there is no, uh, the, the members of the Frankfurt School do not continue as some sort of Illuminati out there. But there's a lot of people who think that they do. And in fact, Strumia actually suggested that PC thought police are trying to hide the fact that physics was, quote unquote, invented and built by men, but that women who could prove that they were brilliant, like Marie Curie, are welcomed once they have, again, proved themselves. Except for the fact that he's completely wrong. Curie was actually rejected by the French Academy of Sciences in 1911, despite already having discovered two elements and having been awarded one of her Nobel Prizes. Now, of course, this was not at all what he had suggested would be the topic of his speech, uh, which was actually supposed to be part of a workshop that was meant to highlight gender issues within the realm of high energy physics. So I guess in that respect, he really nailed it um, because he is everything that is wrong with high energy physics. He was one of 38 scientists invited to speak at CERN. Now, luckily, uh, though, uh, maybe not uh, as quickly as they should have done, uh, CERN has pulled down his slides and has suspended him from any activity at CERN with immediate effect pending investigation into last week's events. The European Research Council, who has funded his research at CERN, has also planned to look into the incident. And finally, the University of Pisa, where he is actually employed, has also announced an ethics committee investigation. So at least he is not going to uh, receive no consequences for this kind of crazy talk. And, you know, Some people will cry free speech, and sure, he has the freedom to say whatever he wants. But the thing is, is that he is not free from the consequences of his speech in a private setting, in a setting like this, because the whole point is that you have people who are molding the next generation of physicists, and if you've got someone with such a toxic attitude... That's not helpful. And so, you know, maybe he could be shunted off into research in some, you know, closet somewhere and allowed to continue his research, but not actually talk to anyone. I'd be okay with that. (laughs) Um, But it's just, you know, it's one of those arguments about like, people should be able to say what they want. Yes, but they shouldn't be consequence free. The only consequence they should be free from is government action. And so, um, you know, this is a whole nother debate for another podcast, uh, like civil politics, which is coming up next. Um, but um, yeah, anyways, it's actually, there's just one more thing about this, which is that there are actually some suggestions that 
people kind of should have known what he was going to be saying and, you know, that basically he should have never been invited because he didn't have any credentials in this field. And this is especially given the fact that U.S. experts who have written about gender and racial biases were actually given short shrift, according to Chandra Prescott-Weinstein, a theoretical physicist at the University of Washington at Seattle, who has actually spoken out about racism and sexism within the field. The number of black women in European high-energy physics are even worse than in the U.S., and one would hope that they'd recognize that our growing intersectional discourse has something to offer them. So, of course, as with all aspects of our culture, we still have a lot of work to do. But, you know, at least some of us are starting the work. Okay, let us take a break now. And on the other side of the break, we're just going to talk about fun physics stuff and other sciencey stuff. Um, we'll talk about one uh, one study that you know it's one of those. Yeah, don't really believe the headlines, but for the most part, everything's okay on the other side. So listen to some PSAs, take a deep breath, and we will be right back. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old, indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andi Musik Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio WXOJLP or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10, Saturday nights. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Hi, this is Christina Mars with the Asylum Street Bankers. And you're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM, Northampton. And we are back. Okay, so like I said, I promised that on this side of the uh, break that everything will just be science and fun. (laughs) Okay, so let us first talk about a really cool thing that's happened. 
And so a group of scientists have just released online in the preprint journal Archive, uh, which is A-R-X-I-V, a detailed 3D map of dark matter. This map will help researchers to determine where and how dark energy, uh, that's the energy that is responsible for the accelerated expansion of the universe, operates in space. Our map gives us a better picture of how much dark energy there is and tells us a little more about its properties and how it's making the expansion of the universe accelerate, Rachel Mandelbaum, an astronomer at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, who was involved in the survey, said in a statement. Now, of course, one might ask, (laughs) how can scientists map something that is by definition unseen and unknown? So if you follow science at all, you know that people have been spending many, many years trying to figure out what dark energy and dark matter are. Well, the researchers used a phenomena called gravitational lensing. And so this is basically when the view of other galaxies are distorted by a huge amount of gravity, which is often due to dark matter. And so the light is distorted because it must pass through these areas with tons of dark matter before it reaches the telescopes on Earth. And so they were actually able to tease out what amount of the distortion was from atmospheric or telescopic distortions and what was due to large amounts of matter that warped the light towards it. Now, the data comes from up to 10 million galaxies studied in the first five years worth of observations from the Japanese Subaru Telescope in Hawaii. And this is part of the Hyper Supreme CAM survey. Now, the project will continue for a further four years in order to help make the map more complete and accurate. Now, one interesting result so far is that the HSC survey found slightly less dark energy than the Planck survey, which surveyed the cosmic microwave background energy. Uh, sorry, cosmic background microwave background, which is energy left over from the beginning of the universe. Now, the difference is not statistically significant, but it does perhaps point to a small possibility that there is a missing element in research understanding, in researchers' understanding of these mysterious parts of our universe. Because, of course, there is still a ton about Uh, dark matter and dark energy that we do not understand at all, even a little. (laughs) Okay, so uh, we're going to stay sort of in physics because we're going to switch over to astronomy, which is closely tied to physics. Uh, And we are going to come back to what has turned out to be quite a favorite uh, topic on this show over the last uh, year or so, uh, maybe even couple years. And so once again, uh, Planet Nine is popping up on my radar. And so uh, if you're new to the idea of Planet Nine, uh, this is a uh, question as to whether or not there is another planet lurking out in the far reaches of our solar system, uh, out in the far reaches of the Kuiper Belt, uh, that we maybe have detected the uh, results of but have not yet seen. And so a new object in our solar system dubbed the Goblin (laughs) is a dwarf planet that never comes closer than 6 billion miles from the sun. Now, it is not the elusive planet X or planet 9, depending. Uh, It's definitely not planet X, actually. That tends to be what people call the, the sort of Nibiru thing that's just silliness. It has nothing to do with reality. But anyways, uh, the goblin is not the planet that uh, people have been looking for. However, this dwarf planet actually suggests, again, that there is some other much larger, more distant planet out there that is acting upon it. Now, the goblin, or 
2015 TG38, as is its proper designation, is referred to as an extremely as an extreme trans-Neptunian object or an ETNO. Now, what makes this object unique is that despite the fact that astronomers were able to discover the object at all, um, was the fact that astronomers were able to discover the object at all, I should say, sorry. Um, and so basically, again, these are really, really, really far out objects. And in fact, um, the mean distance from the sun for the goblin is approximately 80 astronomical units. Now, one astronomical unit is the average distance from the sun to the earth. And to put that into perspective, Pluto is around 34 AU from the sun. So the goblin is very far out into the outer reaches of the solar system. And what's more is that it has an elongated orbit with its aphelion, the point at which it's farthest from the sun, being 2300 AU. Only two other known ETNOs, also discovered by the researchers, uh, which are Scott Shepard of the Carnegie Institution for Science and Chadwick Trujillo from Northern Arizona University, uh, have been found to be further away. And so those two objects have a perihelia, or the measure of an object closer to the sun, that are farther away at 80 AU for the object 2012 VP113, and 76 for the dwarf planet Sedna. Now, Sedna is already known to us, and it is a dwarf planet, and so the researchers actually suspect that uh, the goblin is around 185 miles in diameter. And so this suggests that it is a spherical shape, much like Sedna, though I think Sedna is actually a little bit more football shaped, if I remember. I'm sorry, I didn't think to uh, check on that. Now, these three objects are currently the only members in a class of objects now uh, known as the Inner Oort Cloud Objects, or IOCs. Now, I say now <laughs> um, because there's actually some dispute as to whether or not someone should be naming these things Inner Oort Cloud Objects. Uh, the Oort cloud is currently determined to start at around 2,000 to 5,000 AU away from the sun and to extend out to around 50,000 AU. And so even though these objects are kind of scraping the uh, edge, inner edge of the Oort cloud, it's it's still a little bit in dispute, as many things are in astronomy, as to whether or not they should really be considered inner Oort cloud objects. <laughs> However, there's probably a lot of things out there that we just haven't discovered yet. We think there could be thousands of small bodies like 2015 TG38. 387 out on the solar system's fringes, but their distance makes finding them very difficult, said David Tholen, an astronomer at the University of Hawaii and a co-author of the new study. Currently, we would only detect 2015 TG387 when it is near its closest approach to the sun. For some 99% of its 40,000-year orbit, it would be too faint to see. Now, the goblin was actually also detected by the Subaru 8-meter telescope on Mauna Kea. And so it was first detected there, but then confirmation came from observations made between 2015 and 2018 by the Magellan Telescope at Carnegie's Las Campanas Observatory in Chile. Now, of course... We've been talking about the uh, the goblin, but what exactly does the goblin have to do with Planet Nine? Well, it turns out that Planet Nine 
is kind of one of the hallmarks of these sorts of really obliquely, uh, elongatedly periodic objects. These distant objects are like breadcrumbs leading us to Planet Nine, said Shepard. The more of them we can find, the better we can understand the outer solar system and the possible planet that we think is shaping their orbits, a discovery that would redefine our knowledge of the solar system's evolution. Now, along with co-author Nathan Cabe from the University of Oklahoma, the researchers ran various computer simulations to see just what conditions were needed to form the elongated orbit of this object. In most simulations, the presence of Planet Nine helped create the orbit seen in the ETNO with an effect called gravitational shepherding. What makes this result really interesting is that Planet Nine seems to affect 2015 TG387 the same way as all the other extreme di extremely distant solar system objects. These simulations do not prove that there's another massive planet in our solar system, but they are further evidence that something big could be out there, said Trujillo. And other astronomers have noted that the results are robust and well-designed, including Konstantin Batkin, uh, the Caltech astronomer who, with his colleague Mike Brown, first proposed the existence of Planet Nine in 2016. So he has suggested that the new results add a compelling data point to the growing evidence for the planet. So yes, it seems like more and more that there might be a new planet out there way out in the uh, far reaches of the outer uh, solar system. And that would be really cool. But of course, only time will tell if it really is out there and if we can figure out where it is. Okay, slightly closer to home. I just wanted to give a uh, brief overview and a sort of shout out to the designers of the robot mascot, uh, which managed to last an entire 17 hours as it hopped along the surface of the asteroid Ryugu. Now, of course, 17 hours might actually sound like it was a failure, but it was actually a rousing success. The battery-powered mascot, or mobile asteroid surface scout, was scheduled for only 16 hours of life as it collected data at each hop along the surface of the asteroid. And it was actually able to make three hops, and those were able... And during those, it was able to collect data to better understand what the surface of the asteroid is made of. Now, the robot was built by German and French engineers and joined two other hopping rovers that are still moving across the asteroid. Now, those rovers are solar powered and therefore uh, they're able to have a longer lifespan available to them. The evaluation of the valuable data has just begun, mascot project manager manager. Tra Mi Ho said in a statement, we will learn a lot about the past of the solar system and the importance of near-Earth asteroids like Ryugu. Now, the rovers were launched by the Japanese Hayabusa 2 probe, which approaches approached the, the asteroid at around 250 million miles from Earth. Now, the object actually gets even closer to the Earth, but it doesn't pose a threat to us anytime in the near future, even though it's on a list of potentially uh, menacing items. <laughs> it's still around four times as far away from the moon, and uh, it's actually further than that. That's when it will be closest to us in the next 160 years. So, it's in no danger of uh, impacting us. Of course, we can't say the same for the asteroid. The researchers actually plan next year to have Hayabusa 2 send down a projectile, which is expected to create a six-foot-wide crater on the surface of the object. Of course, that will allow us to get even more information about what's lurking inside and not just on the surface. So it is good science, even though it just seems kind of mean. <laughs> and so the probe will also collect a sample of Ryugu to bring back to Earth in the same way that the original Hayabasu uh, did back in 2010. 
So that's pretty cool. Okay. So let us now switch gears completely (laughs) and talk about a recent study which is being reported widely as proving that artificial sweeteners are poisoning your gut bacteria. Now, as we've been learning more and more about how the bacteria in your gut are integral to your overall health, many more studies are being conducted on this bacteria, which is great. However, the interactions of gut bacteria with our own body's functions is still really mostly a mystery. Like we have just scratched the surface of research devoted to this subject. But of course, everyone loves a scary headline. And I know it's imp- that it's approaching Halloween, but it's important to discuss what scientific research can and importantly cannot say about certain subjects. It does no one any favors to put out these explosive headlines only to have other people have to come back and say, you know, yeah, it's not really what it means. And only about, I would say, a small fraction of the people who read the original article will ever even see that second article. And so it's just very frustrating because it's hard to sort of pull back from that initial headline and to get people thinking about the real science. And so, you know, this one, it's not so bad, but there are others where it's really, this is kind of another one of those critiques of science reporting where, you know, you really have to be a little bit careful about what you're uh, putting out there. Anyways, so the first couple of things that I want to talk about with this uh, study is that the, the study in question was actually done in vitro rather than in vivo. And so what this means is that the researchers conducted experiments on cells in a test tube rather than inside the gut of an actual human which, you know, makes sense. Uh, And so while in vitro studies can often lead to breakthroughs in our understanding of in vivo processes, it's not a guarantee. It is very much like using mice models to design drugs for humans. And if you've ever heard this, (laughs) this show before, you know that I spend a lot of time talking about how mice models are great for some things and terrible for other things. Now, the other thing, important thing to say is that this is not I'm not trying to argue that there is no evidence that artificial sweeteners might actually be harmful to your gut bacteria. There is some good evidence towards that, but let's talk about what the actual study said. So researchers at the Nanyang Technology University in Singapore and Ben-Gurion University and the Volcani Center, uh, both in Israel, tested the effects of six FDA-approved artificial sweeteners and 10 sports supplements containing them on various strands of E. coli. And so those uh, strands of E. coli had been modified to produce bioluminescent light under different stress conditions. Some were modified to glow when their cell walls were damaged, other if their DNA was damaged, and yet others if their protein was damaged. This would allow the researchers to differentiate what kind of damage, if any, the individual sweeteners caused. Now, another important caveat is that, as with most studies of this kind, large amounts of the sweetener were given to the bacteria, much larger than a person would get by simply drinking, say, a Diet Coke um, or a diet soda of any kind. And so this does skew the ability of the study to be directly compared to human results. That being said, each of the samples created a specific fingerprint, which indicated which kinds of damage and in which amounts were created. None of the sweeteners were found to be harmless to those bacteria. Of course, again, as noted by senior author Yevgeny Eltsov, these findings do not prove that the chemicals are toxic to humans. However, he did say, based on this study, I think it's better not to drink diet soda or whatever that has this in it. Um, And of course, there are also other researchers who agree that artificial sweetener may not be specifically toxic, but that they certainly at least don't improve the overall health of your microbiome. And of course, 
what one should say in this at this point is that, as with all things, moderation is key if you wish to have a diet soda or other items that contain artificial sweeteners. And, you know, I actually have to admit, I've had a morning diet soda habit uh, for a while now. I would drink a diet soda uh, every morning for the caffeine. Um, I'm not a big coffee drinker, so that was my caffeine delivery vehicle of choice. Um, And I had actually just decided uh, last weekend that I was going to quit that. Uh, And it was actually before I even read this study, I just decided, you know, I shouldn't be wasting money on this, uh, you know, and I should try and, you know, drink tea or something that's probably better for me. And it is probably better for me. (laughs) Um, And so uh, this current research is interesting, but again, it is not reason to go and throw out everything that you own uh, that has artificial sweeteners in it. Um, One of the things they said that it could be used for, because again, articles always talk about what the uh, practical applications could be, uh, they suspect or they suggest that if the um, test could be refined and made more sensitive, that uh, it could be used to detect artificial sweetener contamination in uh, certain environments. Okay, so let's end tonight with a really kind of nice story about an ancient statue. Uh, So remains of a massive 4th century statue, which is currently on display at Rome's Capitoline Museums, uh, and which is believed to be a representation of the Roman Emperor Constantine, uh, which includes a bronze head, a sphere, um, and the partial forearm and a hand uh, that is missing most of the fingers and uh, a big chunk out of the palm. Uh, But it turns out that one of those fingers for that hand uh, has actually turned up in the archives of the Louvre. (laughs) And so it was discovered by Aurelia Azema, uh, who is now at the French Laboratory for Research on Historical Monuments. And so she discovered the item, originally cataloged as a, quote, Roman toe, while working on her doctoral dissertation on ancient bronze techniques. The finger was an interesting case to illustrate manufacturing techniques, particularly the welding of colossal bronzes, Azima says. Now, the original statue is thought to have stood some 40 feet tall, and the entire remains were part of her study. In looking at the finger and comparing technological features with those of the Constantine statue, the the similarities were everywhere, she explains, in size, casting, repairing, welding, and gilding. And she was actually able to confirm the connection when uh, her colleagues created a 3D model of the finger, finger, which was then taken to Rome and was actually fitted to the uh, remains of the hand. And uh, apparently it fit like a glove. (laughs) All right. So that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics. Uh, They will, uh, I'm hoping, have a special guest uh, and they will be talking about uh, jobs and uh, working and things like that. So uh, do stay tuned and have a good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.